Hi, I'm Bob Fisher, guest hosting for Dave Gilmore, and this is Design Intelligence. Rico Kidding-Dongo has been working for more than 25 years to revitalize and reimagine some of Seattle's most historic landmarks and neighborhoods. He currently serves as Director of the Office of Planning and Community Development for the City of Seattle. On this edition of This is Design Intelligence, he talks about what led him to become an architect, why it's important for architects to be involved in their communities, and how design education might help focus on using design skill sets to pursue alternative career paths beyond traditional architecture. Welcome to this edition of This is Design Intelligence, conversations with leadership voices in the built environment. Rico Kidding-Dongo, welcome to This is Design Intelligence. It's a great pleasure to have you with us today. It's great to be here. Thank you for having me. Well, you know, Rico, just one quick glance at your LinkedIn profile gives the definite impression that you have had a very full career. Yes. Uh, you started originally as an architect. What was it that inspired you originally to become an architect? Um, so, yes, I, I was a practicing architect for 27 years. I actually decided that not very inspirationally to become an architect while I was in high school and I was in 11th grade. I did the perfunctory drafting class at that time, but I was very good at art and I was good at math. I was also very good at math. And so it just seemed like a logical coming together of my skill sets to pursue a path of architecture. I also, like my, my art at the time was very focused on African-American history and kind of the, the struggle that my ancestors and, and that we as a community have had as a burden. And going to Washington University in St. Louis for my undergraduate in architecture, I got a, a double major with a degree in Afro-American studies. And I think that while doing that, I, I realized that where I was focusing my energy in architecture was around social issues, often around uh, social equity, social justice issues, and realizing that I could enter into practice and have that be my focus. And so I very quickly, I identified that there was a pathway to focusing on social justice issues through built environment projects. Was that from the very beginning of your career? Uh, fortunately, yes. And I, and I, you know, I, I feel, I, I do feel very fortunate to have been able to do it, but I don't know how much of it was just good fortune and how much of it was that it was what I was very hyper-focused on. So I, um, I came back to Seattle where I, I am born and raised to do my graduate work at the University of Washington. And I picked a man who was no longer with us. We miss him very much, George Rolf, who was the chair of the urban planning department at, at uh, the College of Built Environment at UW. I asked him to be my chair for my thesis, not knowing what my thesis was at the time, but knowing that I wanted to do something that was looking at city scale issues but then driving that down to a single site solution. And I asked him, you know, what, what could I focus on that was a real project in the city? Because I, I, I'm all about practical application and not kind of academic exercise. 
and he suggested, well, you know, there's this this African American organization. They're looking to try to create a museum for African American history that's focused on the Northwest, and it's been a very troubled project. But you know, if it's something that you wanted to weigh into, there's an opportunity there. And so that's like so. Even before getting out of school, I, what I I spent a year, like fifteen months, volunteering for the organization. I then executed my thesis on the same topic to to create not only an African American museum but also an African American school and affordable housing on a, a single large site that also weaved part of the, an African American community together here that was torn apart by freeway construction and and while doing that project while doing that work. I met a African American architect named Donald King, who was doing similar work in the Central District in the same neighborhood. And ultimately, he hired me uh, straight out of school to work for his practice, community based, working on schools, community use spaces, not for profits, providing social services, affordable housing. So from, from, the beginning, I was able to focus on built environment work that was with a social conscious, uh, with social justice considerations at the heart of it. Yeah. So what happened in your next few career moves and what inspired you to make those moves? It's interesting. I'm, I'm very, I'm someone that is very dedicated on a singular path and very loyal and so I, um, I actually worked for Donald and then with Donald for the better part of 17 years. Um, I, I stepped away for three years to work at Harson Komatsu, Iblish and Tucker. Uh, a, at the time, it was a probably 50-person office doing similar work uh, down in the uh, Bay Area. But came back to, and that was like at the, I think I went down there in 99, came back to... Seattle in the in 2002 because I got a call from Donald saying that we had this opportunity to actually see what is now called the Northwest African American Museum to see that project actually happen. So I came back, um, you know, no longer an intern, uh, but a, an actual project architect. Worked with Donald and uh, the Urban League of Metropolitan Seattle to make that project happen. I mean, Ian did all the things, you know, became a project manager, bought into the firm, became a principal and was with Donald until 2013 when, you know, as a small minority owned firm, the, the weight of the downturn in 2008, we kept going for as long as we could, but we, we had to shutter our doors at the end of 2013 because we just couldn't keep, uh, couldn't keep it going. And that at that point, I, I joined a, an international firm, uh, DLR Group, and helped the firm to build their civic practice in the Northwest. And I was just starting to do work across the nation uh, in that office. Really great group. Oh, when I got a phone call from the mayor at the time uh, here in Seattle, Mayor Jenny Durkin, asking me, and this was a few months after the the horrible tragedy of George Floyd, 
asking me what what it would take for me to join the cabinet, uh, join the mayor's cabinet. Not a question that I was prepared for, but I had, and she did not know this, I had thought about what it would be like to join city government before. So short story, four months later, I found myself joining the Office of Planning and Community Development as the deputy director. And then literally two months later, uh, stepped into the interim director position. So I've been here for two and a half years now, which was very much a scaling up. So where I, where I was able to achieve single site solutions that were focused on a social framework as an architect, now I'm able to do that at the scale of a city of 800,000 people where we're trying to raise all those. So there was a whole bunch of activity that was going on, you know, in between your architecture work and working for the city. I think I stopped counting at about four or five different boards and volunteer positions that you occupied uh, when I was looking at that LinkedIn profile I mentioned earlier. Things like being on the board of the Pike Place Market, being a council member for Historic Seattle and several other positions. How did those come about and what drove you to take on all of that extra work when you were already in a very full life as, a, as an architectural professional? It's a great question. So yes, you discovered that I have had a little bit of a board addiction. I, uh, it actually started very early on. I was the chapter president for the National Honor Society when I was in high school. And then I just kept doing that sort of thing after. But I, but I think that I mean, to focus on what it meant for me as an architect, I, I have always, I've always felt like, you know, I was put on this earth for a reason and that was to help people. And so I've always, I've always felt drawn to public service. I think that, you know, so my, my first board that I was on was an organization, uh, a African-American business organization called Tabor 100, where the idea was to build a consortium of black owned businesses and community based businesses that, that, uh, working together could support each other and, and, and raise all boats. I, what I put together, and this was a, a important piece of the small black owned business, our, our architecture practice was being involved in community understanding the push points, economic needs, and political influences on community. And by being involved in those day-to-day conversations, getting to know civic leaders in the neighborhoods that we worked in, helped us to not only understand better who we were serving, but also understand what were ways that as an architecture firm, we might help get involved in political discussions or advocacy discussions or education discussions that could support community project work. And that's, you know, the, the, the investment in the organizations I've worked with as a board member were sincere interests in the vision and mission of those organizations. Uh, you mentioned historic Seattle, like I don't know, we were often referred to as the the developer of last resort 
being able to save old buildings, you know, for, for a young city that has a very small historic fabric and make investments often in community-based projects within neighborhoods across the city. I was always drawn to those board commitments because I was very interested in the work. As an intern architect, those positions always represented an opportunity to build my experience and portfolio and get to know movers and shakers in the city that would be points of connection for me even after I was no longer serving on that board or civic committee. And I, you know, anytime that I have an opportunity to speak to university students as they are just on the front end of thinking about their careers or intern architects, I try to remind them that like there is no later. There is I mean, there is. But like what don't don't wait until later to get to the thing that you want to get to. Like do that thing now, find that path as a part of your regular day to day. And and volunteerism is an opportunity to do that. Um, and beyond the meaning that it has for civic service, being able to find those opportunities and invest in those kinds of opportunities allows young student or a young intern architect to really broaden their view and understanding of the impact of design thinking in a multitude of different ways that you don't get like sitting behind a desk. Yeah, absolutely. So Rico, can you think of a single architectural or design education program that has internships that are specifically community focused that could help students have the type of experiences that you sought out for yourself? You know, it's a, it's a good question. I don't, I don't have a good answer related to specific institutions. I can, I can say that that one of the reasons I was drawn to come back to Seattle and go to the University of Washington for my graduate work was because UW had a program that brought a lot of practitioners into the academic in- environment. And what that meant was a connectivity between academia and practice and ensured that, you know, whether it was the lectures that we heard or the project assignments that we received in studio, that they were often very much based on real-life problems and real-life experiences of those practitioners that were being put in front of us to, to work on. And I, I think that there's a lot of schools, and you know, I mean, a lot of them, whether community colleges or public institutions, I think there are a lot of schools that do base their curriculum on what is the real work in in the city that they occupy. Um, and I think that if you're if you're a you know if you're a high school student or college graduate looking to go to your, get into an undergraduate program or go back to school for your graduate work, I think looking at what the faculty makeup it is what that tie back to uh, actual practice is for those institutions, I think is a, is a good indicator for whether you're going to be able to get your hands dirty as, as, a, as a part of your academic experience. And when I say get your hands dirty, I just mean like be involved in real work with real people out in the community. Yeah, absolutely. 
Um, a while ago, you and I were talking about the idea of architects going into civic service. And a while back, we had Richard Sweat on this podcast. And as you probably remember, uh, Dick Sweat was a, an, a he was the ambassador, U.S. ambassador to Denmark, I believe, and then also a uh, two-term member of the House of Representatives. But on the national level, I cannot think of another architect since him that's a, that's occupied that kind of public office. And I really don't know that many others besides you who have chosen to go into civic service. Why do you think that is? Why aren't there more people who are doing what you're doing? That's a good question. I, you know, I don't think when I, when I think about our architectural education, I think it is very much focused on design, design thinking, to some extent, engineering, and again, to some extent on architectural practice. But I don't think in general, architecture education, at least, is focused on what are alternate career paths that one can pursue beyond traditional architecture that where, where you are applying that same set of skills. And I think for some people, it's a leap, right? Um, like working in government, which is, you know, dealing with politics, dealing with public realm issues and constituents and city, but city or state or county budgets, it seems very far removed from the business practice of building buildings. What I know, and I learned this both from being a part of growing a community-based practice, but then also volunteering for these civic committees and boards, is that so much of what we are required to do or allowed to do as architects is determined upstream. And those upstream decisions are made in government, right? So the land use decisions, like what type of uses, what building envelopes, what height of buildings, uh, what the framework of a city growth looks like, all of those are decisions made in the seats of government. And then as architects, we execute on, on that framework, but it's not one that we often, most often, are involved in that decision-making. Uh, and so I, I think that as part of my volunteerism, I sought to try to get closer to any opportunities that there were for me as an architect to be involved in those kinds of conversations, however limited, which over time ultimately led me to consider the idea of, of becoming a public official, specifically graphic community development. So if there are people who are architects or other built environment professionals who want to stay in that role, but they want to increase the positive impact that they can have on their communities, what are some things that they can do? Well, you know, an American Institute of Architects has their day on the hill, which has always been a meaningful effort by AIA to connect architects to local politicians and national electeds to bring built environment issues of import that, that we understand to our elected decision makers. 
uh, and make that tie and let them know what's what we think is important. I also think that this I- idea of looking at the city that you are in and the civic challenges within your city, whether it's housing scarcity or food deserts or waterfront development or downtown revitalization, with any of those subject areas, there, without any doubt, is a not-for-profit organization, a grassroots organization, or a city or county committee where they are looking, where they're looking for answers, where they're looking for to, to bring a group of people together that can help them to better understand the the issue at hand and troubleshoot the problem and, and figure out how to get to a better place. And I, and I think that with any of those organizations, having an architect in the midst is an added plus and, and people are always very happy to have a, a trained design thinker at the table to help them as they, as they grapple with these issues. Uh, frankly, whether they're built environment issues or not, but, but so often they are. And so I think that, that finding those opportunities, looking for those opportunities helps us to get closer to solving problems at a larger scale and gets us closer to the decision makers that are making those upstream decisions that that affect our built environment and our communities. It sounds like there's no shortage of opportunities for people to increase their impact. I, I think that's right. I, I think that's right. And I, I think that for any community, rural or urban, there are a whole host of community growth, economic needs, built environment issues that that we can weigh into as architects and, and lend our voice to the process. Sure. So tell tell us a few things that your current position will allow you to do that you couldn't do when you were in the practice of architecture. Sure. So I'm in an office that has a staff of 50 and we have four divisions, long range planning, land use policy, community planning, uh, and then a division called our equitable development initiative. And that group, uh, and this is one of the things I couldn't do as an architect, we invest about $20 million a year into community-led, community-based, largely BIPOC organizations, built environment projects where we are providing city funds to help them realize projects that are serving the public good and that's and and because they are because there is a public benefit that's that's why we are able to provide public funding to these organizations we are also right now working on our 2024 to 2044 comprehensive plan for the city which includes a policy framework for all of our city departments and divisions but has a very large land use component to it, we are rezoning the entire city. And uh, I mean, we just finished legislation in Seattle to rezone all of our industrial maritime lands, which I'm just answering your question about like, what what are the things I can do in, in this seat that I was not able to do as an architect? Like here, we are helping to define what the future development and future growth of the city is. 
with that industrial maritime legislation, we were able to concretize and ensure that as we continue to grow, that we protect the industrial maritime history of our city, that we acknowledge that we are still a working port and the incredible economic value that that that, uh, economy brings to the city while still considering how neighborhoods grow, how housing is allowed within and around those protected industrial spaces and uses. In, in, in this seat, I'm able to operate at a scale that I never was able to when I was uh, an architect working on single site solutions. There's, I, I, I mean, if I'm being totally honest, I miss that work because it, it's very tactile. It's very hands-on. You, I, I learned this moving from architecture into government work. Like when you're working on an architecture project, regardless of the type of project or where you're, where you're building it, you're working with a pretty homogenous group of people, similar levels of education that are trying to execute on a building project, which is very tangible. And once it's done, you have something to show for your efforts. In government, you know, we're doing policy work, which is not tactile at all. <laughs> and uh, where the wide range of people that you are working with from hugely varying different backgrounds and points of view, there is not that homogeneity, which, which, for the work that we are doing is very important for it to not be homogenous, but it also means that it's much more of a challenge getting people on the same page and rowing in the same direction. I have always been drawn to difficult projects, ones that people said couldn't be accomplished or that just seemed impossible by their scope of work. And they've had difficult or complicated stakeholder groups that were involved graduating to doing the work that I do now, I, I just get to do that work every day. And it's, um, it is always very exciting. There's never a dull moment. It gets me out of bed every day. Oh, that's wonderful. So the last question that I have for you is one that's impossibly broad and probably could be a whole other episode or even a series. But I want to, just in the interest of getting the conversation started, how is it that all of us who practice in the built environment can help create a more just and equitable and inclusive set of cities and environments and communities? That's a great question. So it's complicated, right? Like we all, we as any architect that has a degree in architecture and that's in practice has privilege. And, you know, I mean, to be clear, like my parents were both like blue collar workforce. We lived very much hand to mouth when I was growing up uh, in K through 12 education. But now I am, you know, in a, in a very, I'm, I'm working in a position where I have influence, where I have a good salary, where I have good benefits. And a lot of the people that I work for or that I'm, that I'm making decisions on behalf of don't have the same level of privilege that I do being in a position that I'm in. And I think that, that as architects, 
we have to think about that. Like, like what opportunities can we create for others to have voice in the process or to have a seat at the table that creates a more equitable framework for how things get built and how what in built environment projects look like. You know, so City of Seattle is one of the cities across the nation that has a design review process and they look very different from city to city, but it's a regulatory framework where projects of a certain type and size have to have community voice be a part of the process if they are to receive master use permits and a building permit, i.e. without community input, the project can't be built. I would say that, you know, there's there's a, a lot of people feel very differently about the quality of the process or the outcomes of, the, of that process. But I think that on the face of it, whether a regulatory requirement or whether this is something that we're just advocating for with our clients, having community engagement be a part of the development process, I think ultimately and always results in better projects. I think that it results in projects that are a more accurate reflection of the communities that we are building in. I think that by providing community voice in the process, your community engagement process, you have opportunities to gear program components building components in entries, plazas, community use spaces that serve the neighborhoods that projects are being built in that wouldn't necessarily have been identified or understood without that community engagement. And I think that it's that setting a seat at the table that does create and allow for more diverse communities and I think that, you know, as, as we look at gentrification, as we look at more affluent populations moving into BIPOC communities where property is more readily available, I think that, that we really have to hold ourselves to a higher standard as we do work in those BIPOC, traditionally BIPOC communities. How are we doing the work in a way that not only serves the client that we have, but the community that we are in. And that's a sensibility that, that we have to carry as we pursue the work. And frankly, it's a sensibility that's not necessarily one that may be at the fore of the client that we're working with. And so there's a, a path to chart there where we have an opportunity to, to educate our clients about a path for better development that I feel pretty strongly about, but that I think, you know, you have to assess how much leverage you have within the scope of work definition, within the budget of a project, looking at the mission for the project that your client has asked you to execute on to determine where those community-focused opportunities might be. Yeah. Well, it feels like in this conversation that we're just getting started. It's been fascinating to listen to your story about how you grew or maybe deepened your involvement with your community and were able to 
take positions that allowed you to kind of increase the potential positive impact that you can have. And it's been wonderful to hear your advice to people who are still, you know, practicing in the built environment professions on how everyone can work together to make cities and communities that work best for, uh, for all involved. So we just really appreciate you taking the time uh, and sharing your insights and your thoughts with us. Well, I, I appreciate the opportunity to talk on the subject. And I, you know, I, I, I think that, that getting an architecture education is incredibly powerful, regardless of how you choose to apply it after you get out of school. I feel very lucky to be an architect and to be doing the work that I'm doing now. And I, I love the chance to talk with people about how they can be citizen architects and, and servants of the public good. Well, wonderful. You're, you're an inspiration for all of us. Thank you. I really appreciate that. Thank you for joining us for this edition of This is Design Intelligence. The producer is Laura Spells. The sound engineer is Jared Knabel. This has been a DI Media Group production.